I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, as together we are continuing on in the Gospel according to Luke. Today we're going to be looking at Luke 2 and 8 through 20. We'll see you there, the wonderful song of the angels given to the shepherds who are on the hills uh, outside Bethlehem. But before we, uh, we approach the Word of God and we consider what it teaches us, let's go before the Lord once again. Let's ask for His help and understanding. God, our Father, we know that, Lord, in times past, men have studied Your Word without the aid of Your Spirit indwelling them. And so the Word remained a closed book. They might understand its grammar. They might be able to grasp the syntax of the sentences or define the words, but they didn't see Christ in it. The Pharisees studied your word diligently day and night, but they refused to see Christ in the scriptures. And as a result, they did not have the salvation that was spoken of there. We pray, Lord, that that would not be the case with us. That as we read your word, as I read your word, that, oh Lord, you would illuminate us inwardly. I confess myself to be a sinful man with feet of clay. I cannot do anything without your help. As your son told me quite clearly, without me, you can do nothing. I need your grace, Lord. I need your spirit. Without that, I will not be able to divide your word aright. And I pray that I would do that, not going to the left or to the right, but cleaving to the king's highway and explaining to your people the true meaning of Scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 8 through 20. Remind you, this is the word of the living God. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And we came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all those who heard it marveled at these things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told them, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In my younger pagan days before... Uh, <laughs> the Lord turned me to himself. One of my favorite authors was a man by the name of Douglas Adams. Uh, you may have heard of him. He wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And of course, one of the central elements in that book is the idea of the quest for meaning, the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life, the universe, and ever everything as this pangalactic race of uh, pan-dimensional mice. They wanted to know why they were here, what they were supposed to do, what did it all mean, what was the universe here for. Now in that, that's a good thing. Uh, Aristotle was also a pagan, but he was right when he said that the unexamined life is not worth living. 
we know that it is our calling to, to know what we're here for, what we're supposed to do. Unfortunately, in Douglas Adams' book, the answer to life, the universe, and everything was 42. And I'm sorry if I've ruined the uh, novels for anybody. Um, and the, the question, they said, uh, was, uh, what is six times nine? And of course, that's 54. What was Douglas Adams saying? Well, it's all absurd. Nothing makes sense. There, there is no order, there is no purpose in the universe, and so on. And as an atheistic materialist, that indeed was his worldview. The sad thing is he passed into eternity not realizing, yes, there is a purpose, and it's not 42. It's far, far deeper and more meaningful than that, that we were created for a reason. And as we look at these verses, we see that reason before us. I'll give it away, as I've, given, as I've just destroyed the novel series for you, I might as well give you the answer answer to the sermon. What are we here for? And the answer is, of course, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as these angels glorified God, and as we shall see, as these shepherds glorified God as well. That is what we were made to do, brothers and sisters. Friends, we were not put here on the earth simply to make money, to gather together accumulated uh, things, to fill houses with toasters and microwaves and widescreen TVs and so on, but rather, you and I were put here on this planet to worship God and to teach others to worship him as well. That is the meaning of our life. Well, looking then at these scriptures, we see three things in particular that I'd, I'd like you to notice. The first is the message that the angels brought. The second thing was the people to whom the message came. And the third thing is what these people did after they received the message. What did they do with the message that they received? How did they respond to it? So first, let's take a look at the message. On the night in which Jesus was born, we see angels appearing to shepherds. These are shepherds who are tending their flocks in the hill country around Bethlehem. Uh, that does not happen in the winter, incidentally, so it tells us something about the uh, placement of these events. Uh, these messengers of God came bringing the greatest and most important news that has ever been communicated, namely that Christ the Lord had been born in Bethlehem. Jesus, the Savior, whom the people of Israel had been longing for, the promised one, the one whom God had said to Abraham would be a blessing, not just to Israel, but to all the nations. They came declaring, he has been born. Now, we see the word Christ used to describe him in verse 11. Uh, this is a word Christos, uh, which uh, is the Greek, actually, for the, for the Old Testament word Mashiach, the anointed ones. Now, we know that the anointed one in the Old Testament, uh, that there were many anointed ones. There was David, for instance, who was anointed by Samuel to be king. The, the high priest would be anointed to enter into his office. But Jesus is singular in that he is anointed beyond measure with the Holy Spirit. We'll see that happening in a little while, as a matter of fact. The Spirit descending upon him in this wonderful confirmation that he indeed is the Messiah. But... That's getting a little farther along than we should be. Now, they would have understood that word Messiah. They would have understood what it was that the angels were promising them. They had every week in the synagogue heard the word of God, and now they knew that the long-awaited Messiah was coming to them, the one who would be their deliverer, who would be their savior, who would be as 
Isaiah put it, Emmanuel, that is God with us. They'd been praying, even these shepherds, no doubt, had been praying that the day would come when the deliverer would come from God. And now the Lord God had become incarnate. He had taken to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and had been born amongst men. He had come to dwell amongst them, to tabernacle amongst them. And the message is not just, notice this, that Christ is born in Bethlehem. That would have been good tidings in and of itself. But also, we read in verses 11 and 12 that this will be a cause of great joy to all the nations. He's not just the Savior of Israel, the Messiah of the Jewish people, but the Messiah of all true descendants of Abraham by faith. Everyone, every nation who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obtains these blessings and becomes truly a son of Abraham. Now, the word that's used there to describe him is savior. Savior or soter in Greek means deliverer. Someone who delivers someone out of their their perilous situation, a situation that they could not deliver themselves out of. Jesus, the Savior, has come to deliver not only the Jews, but men from every time and place from their real enemies. Now, if you'd ask the average Jew, who are your real enemies? What's your biggest problem in this world? Most of them, unfortunately, would have pointed to someone else, usually the Romans or perhaps one of the collaborators, the Herodians. Uh, The Herodians would have pointed to the Pharisees, and the Sadducees would have done the same. The Pharisees would have pointed to the Sadducees, the Romans, the collaborators, and so on. All of these people, they're my problem. And indeed, there are countless people in the world today. You ask them, what's your problem? They always point to something outside of themselves, some person. This woman, this man, this nation, this people, this political party. They're my problem, and I need somebody to deliver them from me, and then I'll be happy. But if you were to wipe out all of their physical enemies, they might experience a little bit of schadenfreude, but eventually they would go back to being miserable again because they don't understand what their real problem is. Brothers and sisters, the real problem that you have, I have, every man after the fall has, is not outside of them. The problem is not outside of you. The problem walks around with us. The problem is our sin. The problem is our fallen nature, something that we cannot redeem ourselves from. Our problem is sin and death, because sin brings death. And so we need somebody to save us from that. We need a Savior who will interpose his own precious blood on the behalf of his own elect people, who will atone for them, who will pay their sin debt, in a way that we can never pay our sin debt. We just accumulate sin constantly. We think to ourselves, perhaps if I do this one good deed, I do this one thing, that will cover all of my sins. It's like the murderer saying, well, yes, I killed 20 people, but I cut the widow's lawn the next day. Isn't that good enough? And of course, what judge or jury would say, oh yeah, I guess you really are a good guy. Not at all. Brothers and sisters, There is nothing that we can do that would atone for our own sins. We need somebody to atone for them for us, to to pay for them. And so God sent into the world his own son to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And we read there, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That's the Savior who's being promised to these shepherds on the hillside. But in order to make full atonement for us, 
for the sins of his people and to make it possible for us to enter into the presence of a holy God. We needed more than just to have our sins washed away by his blood. We needed a positive righteousness. A righteousness that can only come through obedience, perfect obedience to the law. And even after our sins are washed away, after we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are any of us perfect? Tell me, O Christian, those of you who have truly come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, has your obedience since then been perfect? No. We all know that. We have in many ways fallen short of the mark even after we were saved. So we need a righteousness, not our own, a perfect obedience. And the wonderful thing is that God sent his son to obey the law. He was born under the law to keep it perfectly in our stead and then impute that righteousness that we need so very badly to us to take away the rags of our own worthless attempts at obedience and instead to give us his own perfect robe, that garment that is spotless. Seamless. When God sees us, therefore, at the end of time, he does not see our own failures. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, and he is pleased. That's why on the cross, you remember, Jesus didn't say as he was dying, and so it begins now through their good works, my people will make themselves acceptable in the sight of God, I hope. And then he died. No, he said one word. What was that word? To tell us die. It is finished. Or, as a merchant would stamp upon a bill, paid in full. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was done by Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be the Savior of God's people. To make perfect atonement for their sins, to wash them away, and then to give them that righteousness that will enable them to stand in the presence of a holy God. That is a wonderful thing. That's what justification is all about. It means that we stand before God in need of nothing because it's been provided for us by God, united to Christ, our Savior by faith. Our sins are imputed to him, paid in full, and his righteousness given to us allows us to stand and not be afraid, to not fear the day of judgment. I have seen in 20 years, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting old and <laughs> daughtery. How many years is it now? 22, 22 years of, of ministry. I've seen many people die. I've seen people die without Christ. That's a fearful thing. They jump off into the void, and you can see the fear in their eyes. It, it reminds you of the fear of an animal that's trapped. What they would do for just another day. I think it was Voltaire who said he would uh, give the the doctor who was attending him, half his fortune if he could just provide him with another day of life because of the terrible fear of what has come. Now, I've seen Christians die as well, some of them dying in pain, but there is a relief. There is a joy in some cases because they know where they're going. They know what comes next. They have no fear because they are entering into the presence of the God who provided for their righteousness, who has given them a savior, a blessed inheritance. He is that branch. That's what the 
angels came to tell these shepherds, the branch has finally come. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called. In the Hebrew, it's Jehovah Sidkinu. It's one of the most wonderful titles for Christ in the Bible. It means the Lord our righteousness. God himself is our righteousness. And that is the the message that the angels delivered, surrounded by the glory of God and then this host of heaven. Not only that Jesus is coming to be the Savior and the Messiah, but that he will also come to create peace between God and man and then peace on earth. Now, when we talk about that peace on earth, do not confuse the peace that Jesus brings with the simple absence of war. That's what so many people do. They think of peace as nations not killing each other for a little while. But the peace that Jesus brings is not the same. It's not that fleeting, illusory peace uh, that angry people march around demanding so often these days. It's not that at all. When Christ was born, we need to remember that the world was actually enjoying a time of unprecedented peace in terms of the absence of war. And that was because they were living in the age of the Pax Romana. The Roman emperor had created peace within the empire by crushing any force that rose up to oppose the Romans. And that peace would continue for some time. But even then, in the first century, in the midst of the Pax Romana, the people understood there was a deeper peace that they were lacking. The philosopher, the pagan philosopher, Epictetus, who was actually a contemporary of Luke, he wrote some striking words about just how shallow simply the absence of war is and how unsatisfying it is ultimately. He said, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. He can give us peace out here, so that our neighbors aren't killing us, but he can't give us peace in here. And that, brothers and sisters, we live in a nation, for the most part, at peace. And yet, so many of us feel no peace at all. They feel only despair. They wake up every morning dreading the day because they don't have that inner peace. That peace, that peace in the heart is what Jesus came to bring, and and only he can truly provide it. Until we are reconciled with God, we will never know true peace. As Augustine said, Thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find peace in thee. Now, brothers and sisters, whether or not we realize it, friends, There is a God-shaped void within all of us when we come into this world that can only be filled by an infinite being. It can only be filled by Christ. That's what we need, his indwelling presence. And we note this, we will never be truly reconciled to our fellow men until we are reconciled to our creator, until the breach in the vertical relationship is healed. We'll never heal the horizontal relationship. And that is what the apostles conveyed, that he'd come to bring peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, says Paul, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And only to the extent that we know Christ do we know peace. Now, will our peace be limitless and perfect and so on on this side of glory? The answer is no. There will be times when we will feel like the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, tossed about in the storm. And we'll have to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, don't you care that I'm perishing? 
But brothers and sisters, the answer is that faith. That's what Jesus told them. He said, in essence, why are you afraid? You have little faith. I'm here with you. If Christ is with you, brothers and sisters, you have the true source of peace with you all the time. Well, brothers and sisters, it's only if we embrace Christ that we experience that true peace that he brings. That then is the message that these angels were delivering, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, born to save sinners and to reconcile them to God. And that is the same gospel message that all of Christ's faithful gospel messengers, good news messengers, should be giving to the world, whether they're angels or prophets or apostles or evangelists or these days... Simply faithful Christians, wherever you're walking. And I pray the message that you are hearing today is one that you won't keep to yourself, but that you will share it with others. But notice also, I want you to notice this, the way they delivered it. How do they deliver it? They don't, it wasn't, and the angels appeared to the shepherds to deliver them a lecture on the subject of salvation using charts and drawings and a laser pointer that they marveled at. I mean, it wasn't like that. How was it? It was intense. It was emotional. It was sung. It was full of glory. The the angels could not hold back their praise. They too were mystified, amazed at what God was doing. That he had sent the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to be incarnate upon earth. And there he was, laid in a manger, wearing swaddling cloths. This is the one whom they'd worshipped, the one whom they bowed before, whose glory they had seen. Even the demons knew him, those fallen angels, because they'd seen him in heaven. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, and here is the Holy One of God, born of a woman, born under the law, and they, they shout God's praises. How tepid is our glorifying of God by extension? How often is it that we have these exalted words cast up on the screen and we're sitting there kind of like either got to get to the next part or we're just glory to God and you know that that there's nothing in us. And how are we going to convey the importance, the joy that we have in Christ to others if we present the gospel in a joyless or an angry manner, you know? You gotta believe in God or you're gonna go to hell. Do you understand? Oh, so stupid. That is not the way. I've just synopsized a ton of exchanges on Facebook. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, there should be a joy in your heart. If you don't, if you're not a joyous Christian, you're doing it wrong. There's something wrong. Let me go on to the second part. Time, Time flies. The message, note who it was delivered to. It wasn't delivered to emperors. It wasn't delivered to kings. It was delivered to shepherds watching over their flocks as they did in that season, in every season, I should say, except for the winter. Now, much is made of the fact that God chose to deliver this most important of all messages, not to kings, emperors, or priests, but to humble shepherds. And it is true that as James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He does do that. But I don't think it was merely because they were humble and because they were there, standing on the hills, that God chose shepherds to give the message to. It's obviously something that harkens back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? 
What was the profession that God most commonly gave to the men he wanted to do great things with as leaders of his people? Seems to me it was shepherding, wasn't it? I mean, think about it. David, Moses, the patriarchs, and so on. Shepherds, shepherds, shepherds. Why? Because by shepherding the sheep, these, these animals that, and I am told by sheep farmers, yes, they are really stupid. Um, they learn so many important things about how to go about shepherding. But more importantly than that, a shepherd's main duty is to lead his people to glorify God, to show them through the word, through the sacraments, through the means of grace, how glorious God truly is, and then lead him to worship, lead them rather to worship that Lord. So we, we see the image of shepherds being used by God to indicate the spiritual leaders who would come. Uh, and of course, they point us, don't they, to the greatest of all shepherds? Who was the greatest of all shepherds, incidentally? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. So what did those shepherds do with the message? Well, they didn't just hear it and then say to one another, now wasn't that nice? I mean, here we were standing out in, in the open and, and the angels, they, they bring us this amazing concert. What a singing voice those angels have. And then they went back home. No, that's, that's not what happened. The things they did are exactly the same things that we should do when we receive that message. Even if it doesn't come to us from angels from on high, singing with choirs of, of uh, the mighty host of God. Uh, I, I want to set three things before you. On hearing the gospel message, they believed these good tidings of great joy. They didn't say, I doubt that. They said, glory and hallelujah. On receiving that message, they believed what the angels were telling them. Secondly, on hearing the gospel message, they, as the Puritans put it so well, they closed with Jesus Christ. In their case, they went to see their Savior, literally. And when they got there, what did they do? They worshipped him. And thirdly, they glorified and praised God, and they shared the gospel message. It just came naturally out of them as a reaction. I can still remember the days after I was first saved. It, the, the gospel just came bubbling out of me at every... You know, people would be... They were scared of me. When I, you know, they, they would be... You know, you want to stick a gum? I don't need gum. I've got Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Oh, he did it again. I thought that was an innocent question. How did he... You know, my wife and I would do it constantly. You could see the strain on my parents' faces trying to figure out, can they turn this in the direction of the gospel if I start a conversation about the weather? Do you know about the storms that Jesus stilled? <laughs> Stuff like, you know, we, we really did that. And uh, sometimes the offense was us and not the gospel. But brothers and sisters, the point is, when God puts his Holy Spirit within you and gives you that godly joy, it comes out of you. It overflows, and it should. He's filled up your cup to overflowing, and you just want to share the good news with others. I remember thinking, I don't want anybody to go to hell. I don't want anybody to feel the way I did without Christ. And so I just I wanted to tell them all. And that is a good thing. Well, 
We need to close with Jesus Christ. We need to hear his offer of salvation. We need to go with him. And then we need to share that, that gospel message with others. You need to believe on him. You are those people who have not seen. You could not literally go physically to the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, although he will return to be with us one day. But we can go to him spiritually wherever we are. We can throw ourselves right here. You don't have to, incidentally, you don't have to advance to the, to the front of the, the, the stage and kneel and say a prayer or anything like that. You can actually do this in your seat right where you are. And that is throwing yourself upon the mercy and the promises of God. He has promised to be your Savior if you will submit to him. If you will bow the knee and confess Jesus is Lord. If you will, as Romans 10, 8 through 10 puts it. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So simple and yet impossible for the stubborn and stony heart to do. What is it that stands between you and salvation? Ultimately, if you have not yet been saved, the thing that stands between you, is, uh, between you and that salvation is you. You are the one who is stopping you from coming to Christ, closing with him. You must do that. You must close with him. It is so important. I mean, if you have not closed with Christ, then the table, the Lord's Supper is a farce. Coming and taking it, you are eating and drinking judgment, as Paul says, literally to yourself. Robert Murray McShane said this, to take that bread and that wine is declaring that you do close with Christ, that you take him to be your savior, that God has opened your heart to believe. In marriage, the acceptance of the right hand is a solemn declaration by sign that you accept the bride or bridegroom, and so in the Lord's Supper. If it is not so with you, then it is a lie, and it is a lie to the Holy Ghost. It must be the case that we have closed with him before we come to his supper. Finally, we notice this. The shepherds, they, they heard this message and they went out and they delivered it to others. And then they glorified and they praised God. May it be that we follow their lead, that we desire to go out into the world to glorify God. It should not be the case that we are leaving the ones whom we love and we work with, those whom we're acquainted with in the dark about Christ. If you are a Christian, and I hope you all are, but if you're a Christian, then there's that joy unspeakable that dwells within your heart that will only get stronger as you get closer and closer to the heavenly city. And then when you pass through the gates, what joy you will feel knowing that you are embarking upon an eternity of endless praise and glory and worship and celebration. This supper, as wonderful as it is, is just a brief foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb when we will eat with Him. What joy there will be when we are reunited with our lost loved ones who have gone, well, not our lost loved ones, when we're united with our loved ones who have gone on before us, who have died, whom we said, see you later to. What a joy that will be when we worship the Lord together, not just because we're with them, but because we're with Christ, no longer seeing as through a glass darkly, but face to face. What joy. Well, let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you did not keep the gospel message to yourself, but shared it with all the world. 
We pray, Lord, that we would follow the example of those humble shepherds in Bethlehem, that we would glorify your name, that we would be so happy to have heard the good news that Jesus has come, that Emmanuel is now tabernacling with his people. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would go into the world and share that message, and not share it as drudgery or duty, but to share it out of a, a true sense of joy at what you have done for us and a desire to see others come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, help us to do that. And help us, oh Lord, to make sure that Christ gets the glory. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.